Almighty God, we thank you for this word. We thank you that your word is living and active. And we pray now that your word would cut through the places where we are comfortable, where we are asking for you to stir us up. And we ask that your word would also comfort us where we are already stirred up, where we are hurting this week. May the words of my mouth and the things that we think about in each of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So if you've been with us uh, throughout the month, you've been hearing these messages about Philippians, and our theme has been that we are on a search, we are trying to find our joy. And that's the message that Paul has put in front of the people of Philippi, this church that he loved. And he's writing them in today's section and saying, there it goes. Dramatic pause. Thank you, Jared. People don't, I mean, my face being blocked, that's not a problem? Okay, whatever. It's fine. He's writing the Philippians and he's saying, don't worry about anything. Why do you need to tell somebody not to worry? In your own life, like, why do you have to say to a friend of yours or someone you love, someone in your family, hey, don't worry? Because you see them getting agitated, right? It's usually a stimulus and a response. Like, we can kind of make that connection. One of the things we're going to talk about today is why in the world the Philippians would need to be worried. What could have been going on in their life, in their context, that would have created a sense of worry? And as we've learned throughout this series, the Philippians were pretty successful people. They lived in a very safe very affluent part of the Roman Empire. They were happy that the Romans had come in and given them citizenship. They enjoyed the freedom that that provided. They enjoyed the military protection. Why would such a people be anxious? And does that sound anything like the world that many of us live in, in the affluent, safe suburbs of the east side? Why are we anxious? Why would someone need to say to you or to me, hey, don't worry about it. Don't be afraid. Don't worry. A pastor I admire says that the difference between fear and anxiety is fear is usually built up around one event. Fear is when you're driving in your car, you go through an intersection, and there's a close call. Somebody tears around you, right? They just barely miss you. You think they might have chipped a little bit of your taillight. It was so close. That moment creates a sense of fear in you. What anxiety is, is when that fear gets stuck on repeat. Anxiety is when we face a fear and it keeps coming back to us again and again and it goes underground and it starts to be something that increasingly slips out of our control. Fear is a one-time thing, it's a rush, but anxiety is when we can't let that go. Now, I just want to throw out a little disclaimer here. I recognize that anxiety is a medical condition. I recognize that there are plenty of resources for that and all I hope to offer today is a vantage point into that from the scriptures, not to belittle the medical condition, not to say you don't need drugs, you don't need those other things. Those are important things. But one of the ways that we need to try to understand anxiety is the way that Paul talks about it. This loop, this thing that keeps coming back and playing in front of us again. For me, one of my triggers for anxiety is when I really feel the weight of leadership. If you're in a leadership position, you know exactly what I'm talking about. When people look to you, and they want to know what's going on. When they're asking you to help define reality for their project or for their task, it can create a sense of anxiety because you go, oh man, I've been here before. And I don't know that I showed up in the best possible way before. That's one of the burdens of leadership is that we have to keep facing these challenges, not for our sake, but for the sake of the people we're trying to lead, for the sake of the mission that we're after. And so when I feel anxiety... It comes from this place where I believe a lie, and maybe you can relate to this a little bit. The lie is, it's all up to me. 
It's all on my shoulders. Now, there is no empirical evidence to substantiate that whatsoever, right? I've got a great team of people around me. We have an amazing local advisory team, great staff. There's no reason for me of sound mind and body to be thinking that I gotta do it all alone. But guess what I do? When I'm afraid, I start to believe the lie, I have to do it all alone. And I see some of you nodding, you know what I'm talking about. It happens. And the physical symptoms that come with that. My skin gets hot, my chest gets tight. I've had moments where I've been like in an environment like this and I really wasn't able to breathe. Like these are things that happen when we experience anxiety. And the way that I want to try to connect us to it, and the way that I think Paul connects his audience to it is, anxiety is when we take the weights that have been entrusted to us, and they're just too heavy. We either make them too heavy, or they just are too heavy. And guess who hates to admit that something's too heavy? Successful people. People who've made it. People who are far along in their career and are going, I got this. I may not know much, but I know how to show up to my job. I may not know much, but I know how to do this. I know how to pastor. I know how to preach. We hate admitting when we're afraid. There was an article in Slate magazine recently that said that 18% of American adults suffer from some kind of anxiety disorder. 18%, one in five, basically. Spending on anti-anxiety medications like Xanax and those types of drugs from 1997 to 2004 went from $900 million to $2.1 billion. We live in a time of anxiety, and why are we worried? Because we make these weights too much. Or we experience some kind of condition internally where the weight just becomes too heavy for us. And this was happening to the people in Philippi. And this happens to people like us. So we need to pull this apart. We need to kind of dive into the text together. So the invitation I want to offer today is fourfold, and these are outlined in your bulletins. We're going to talk about the pressures that the people of Philippi faced, which is essentially the problem, the promise that lifts them out of that pressure, the practices that drive freedom home, and the person that we're counting on to be our freedom. The problem, the promise, the practices, and the person. Four sections, all starting with the letter P. You're welcome. Let's talk about the problem that they're facing. The problem that the Philippians are facing, I would kind of chart like this. Like this is a little bit like a line graph, right? As their faith in Jesus Christ is growing, as their ability to be the church, to be united together in Christ in a place like Philippi, as that is on the rise, so is the resistance that's coming from the wider culture to their belief and to their way of life. As their faith is on the rise, so is resistance on the rise. For me, this was true when I first became a Christian. I was in high school, I was coming up on my senior year, and this is relatively minor, but at the time it was something I noticed. A lot of my friends were starting to say, hey, it's senior year, like, don't worry about it. You don't need to show up for a class, you don't need to do your assignments, you don't need to do all these things. And of course, that rubbed me the wrong way, because I'm a firstborn child, like, highly responsible to a fault, all these kinds of things. But more so than that, my mom is a teacher, and I knew how disrespected teachers felt when students show up and they don't care. So I'm going, okay, I want to honor my teachers. I think Jesus wants me to be in this place right now where I'm a student, where I'm, this is part of my calling as a student is to honor the teachers above me. I don't want to be like my friends who are just mailing it in right now. And that's not to say I was better than them, but it did create some friction where I was going like, yeah, I'm, I'm actually going to go to class today. Like, I'd love to go with you to go do this fun thing, but I'm going to show up. You can call me a suck up, teacher's pet, that's fine. Tweet about it, go right ahead. But we come into conflict when our faith in Christ is on the rise with the prevailing culture. That's the point I'm trying to make. 
Philippi was a Roman colony, like we talked about. And these people who came to faith in Jesus Christ through the Apostle Paul's ministry, they were not Jews, they were mostly Gentiles. They were people that he had to do some major, major bridge building to even reach with the gospel. And so they owned their faith in this very deep and rich way. You see this all throughout the letter. Any Roman colony had this funny thing happen where every time there was a public event, think a performance of theater, think a speaker coming into town, think a, a display of arts and creativity. When those things happened in the Roman world, the way that that event began was with an invocation, with a word from somebody, some leader in the community saying to the people, hey, we're gathered here today to do this, that, or the other. You hear this at weddings, you hear this in other public ceremonies. The people of Rome, though, weren't just invited to the performance. They weren't just saying like, hey, welcome, we're so glad you're here at today's performance of this play or whatever. They were invited to show their loyalty, to show fealty to Caesar at the beginning of these public events. They were expected to rise to that occasion and to all agree together about certain things that were true about Caesar. In the day of the church at Philippi, when Paul's writing this letter, we think the rise of treating Caesar as God was huge. That was a growing development in the Roman Empire. Originally, Caesar was maybe regarded as God, maybe not. That wasn't something that everyone was expected to subscribe to. Now it's an expectation. Now it's something that the people of Philippi are saying, wait, 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 we signed up for this too? We signed up to be Roman citizens. We agreed to let you guys come in and conquer us, but we didn't know we were signing up for worshiping another god. And the way this would have started was, at the beginning of these public ceremonies, somebody would have got up in there and said, hey, we're all here today, citizens of Rome, let's just spend a moment saying thank you to our great god, Caesar. Let's say thank you to our savior, Caesar. Let's say thank you to our redeemer, Caesar. If you're a Christian, you can't assign that title to somebody else. It's not right. It it makes your skin crawl because there's only one person, more than a person, worthy of that title. So when somebody gets up and says, proclaim your fealty to this, roll up to this, tell us you agree with this or else, there's some tension in the room, isn't there? I can feel it right now. Y'all know what I'm talking about. This is just a creepy thing for people to step into, and yet this is what was being put upon the people of Philippi, and they really didn't have a say in the matter. They were going to do it whether they liked it or not, and they were choosing not to. I'm going to ask Eric to put a picture up on the screen for us. Many of you have seen this picture before, but I wasn't familiar with the story behind this picture until this week. How many of you have seen this before? This is a rather grainy image. I apologize for the resolution of a shot from Nazi Germany in 1935. And it's a whole group of people giving the Nazi salute. And then the circle is around the one man who's not doing it. He's got his arms folded across his chest like this. That man's name, we think, was August Landmesser. And this was at the launching of a new naval vessel in 1935 in Germany. Landmesser was caught in this photo not giving the salute that all of his neighbors and friends were giving to Führer, and he wasn't doing it just because he didn't feel like it that day. Like, I've seen this picture before as like, hey, join the resistance, be like this guy, stand up to the man. That wasn't his motivation at all. What some scholars think his motivation was is that he was dating a Jewish woman. He had a relationship with somebody who was part of a community for whom this was not okay. 
And hence his position of defiance. Hence him crossing his arms across his chest and saying, nope, I can't do that. It's the relationship that causes him to stand against the tide. You can take the picture down now, Eric. Thank you. Relationship drives us to stand apart. Relationship drives us to stand apart. And that can be true if you're a follower of Jesus Christ or if you're not. But if you follow Jesus, you have experienced this. If you're in business, you've experienced a meeting where somebody says, hey, if we do this and we do that and we kind of push this over here, this is called uh, enroning things, let's hide the books over here, let's do that, then we'll be able to show that we're profitable this year. If you're a Christian and you're seeing that meeting, you're going, I don't think I can do this, you guys. But what do you do? Do you leave the room? That's kind of awkward. Do you quit your job? That's really awkward and costly. What do you do? There are these moments when we, as followers of Jesus Christ, as our faith is on the rise, that pressure to conform to the thing around us, whatever that thing is, starts to become higher and higher. Parents understand this deeply because when we try to teach our kids morals, we got to do more than just teach them morals. we got to teach them about how to be people of integrity. It's more than just teaching them to be good people. It's pointing them toward the person who calls us to stand in opposition to things that aren't right. That's the problem the Philippians are trapped in. Stuff was on the rise that they didn't want to agree with, and they were increasingly isolated from their friends and neighbors. This is becoming a problem. That's the problem. The promise is so wonderful. Turn with me back to Philippians chapter 4. The premise for this section is a promise is better than an answer. A promise is better than an answer. Let me explain. Listen to verse 5. We'll read 4 and 5. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Can you say that with me? The Lord is near. That is two words in the Greek. Curious eggus. My spell check this week kept wanting to correct it to curious eggs, which I thought was really funny. (laughs) Curious eggs. Write that one down. Teach it to your children. All it means is the Lord is near. It's a statement of fact, but it's also a promise. The Lord is near. This is not an isolated incident in the story of the people of God. Go back to Exodus 14 with me. Some of you will know this from uh, your years spent in church. If you don't know it, it's a wonderful, wonderful story, true story, from the people of Israel who heard the Lord is near at a very critical time. Exodus chapter 14 is when the people of God, the Israelites, are fleeing from the nation of Israel. They are trying to get out of town, trying to get to freedom. They are on the run. Pharaoh is chasing after them. They turn back. They're at the corner of the Red Sea. They look behind them, and they see this ominous cloud of dust, and they hear the thunder of horses' hooves, and they're going, oh my gosh, they're coming for us. And they face the opposite direction, and there's the sea that they cannot penetrate. They can't get through it. And so in a great moment of courage, Moses, who is not a naturally courageous person, he was a broken, frustrated, but still God-anointed leader of the people, he gets up in front of them and says this to them. This is Exodus 14, verse 13. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand firm, see the deliverance that the Lord will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. Put an end to your anxiety, put an end to your fears being on repeat. You will never see them again. The Lord will fight for you, you have only to keep still. Now that's a great verse, great reassurance. This is God's power, this is not your power, Israelites. You're not going to turn around and beat these people. God's going to take care of you through this. It's an amazing promise, right? God is near. He will be with you. But if you keep reading, it gets even better. 
In verse 15, it says this, The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry out to me? Tell the Israelites to go forward. God's saying to Moses, stop talking. You need to go. Like, get across the Red Sea. They are right behind you. Keep going. That's a good word for any of us. That's a good word for any of us who have come out of a season of fear or were finally free from a relationship that was just terrible, abusive, broken. We've turned a corner in our marriage. We're finally starting to see some traction with one of our coworkers we've just never been able to understand. Go forward. Keep moving. Keep leaning into that opportunity that God has given to you. Don't keep looking back in fear. Go forward. And then God gets very specific and gives Moses one last thing to chew on. And this is in verse 16. But you, Moses, you lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, and the Israelite, so that the Israelites may go into the sea on dry ground. Here's how I would paraphrase that. In other words, Moses, take the tools that I've given you, like your staff and your voice and your position of leadership, ask for my power to do something incredible and keep going. Keep leading the people forward. Use what I have entrusted to you, your resources, your training, your degrees, your pedigrees, all the things that I have given to you, says Almighty God, and help your people. Help the people that you're serving. If you're a student, help the other classmates that are sitting next to you and are struggling. If you're in business, help the guy next to you. Don't just use your influence for you. Use it for others. The promise is better than an answer because the answer to the problem could have been God dropped a giant piano on the Israelites. But that's not what he does. He says to them, I will be with you. I will make a way for you. He didn't even tell them how he's going to make a way, right? If he just answered them, well, I'm going to part the Red Sea and it'll be fine and you'll walk across on dry land, I probably would have stood there with my mouth open going like, you're going to what? Like, how does that help me right now? Like, part the, I, I don't care. Get rid, of the, get rid of these Egyptians. And God says, no, I'm going to make a way. And my promise is, I will be with you. The Lord is near. Turn to your neighbor and say, the Lord is near. The Lord is near, you guys. Are we facing something this week where we just need to hear that? The Lord is near. He is not far from your place of work. He is not far from where you park your car. He is not far from your neighbor's. He is not far from other kids at school that you see bullying another kid and you're going, I don't know, that's not right to me. He is not far. The Lord is near and he has promised to be near his people. And that's you and that's me. And those are, that is those of us who call upon his name like the Israelites did in a moment of crisis. The promise is better than the answer. Curious eggs, curious eggs, I'll be with you. I will be with you. Remember that as you go out this week. Remember that as you face those moments of anxiety where your fears go on repeat again. Remember that. That's the promise. The practice, I always think about Alan Iverson. That's just terrible. The practice is what we need to lean into to make this peace a reality, to really engage this in our lives. And very simply, the practice goes like this. The practice of prayer leads to peace. That's what Paul's telling the Philippians. Turn back with me to Philippians chapter 4 again. I know we're bouncing back and forth, but it's good to get little finger marks on your Bible. Chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Paul writes, Do not worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Okay, we're going to get a little creative with some definitions here, but stick with me because I think it's worth it. If we look at the, this one phrase from verse 6, in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, we actually get four different encouragements to pray. 
The first encouragement is just in everything by prayer, like employ prayer, whatever it is that you're facing. The second encouragement is that word supplication. If you go into the original language, the Greek, that's translated prayer elsewhere. Like different New Testament writers use that same word for prayer. So, so far, Paul is saying to the people, by prayer and by, sup- and by prayer, you should keep moving forward in your life. Then he says the word thanksgiving, which is eucharista, which is where we get the Eucharist, where we understand gratitude, where we understand God giving us the gift of himself at the table. The act of giving thanks, you guys, if there's one thing in my prayer life right now that God is just teaching me again and again, it's how important it is to start with the word of thanks. Lately, I've been rolling out of bed and I make my coffee and I'm barely awake and then I try to start prayer and it always goes to my to-do list. Do you, do you guys do this? Like where you just default to like whatever the pressure is that morning, whatever it is that you're thinking about, that thing that's on anxiety repeat, that just is how I've been starting off my prayers. And that's fine, but it's kind of lame, and I get tired quickly, and I don't want to keep going in prayer. What's been so much more encouraging to me in prayer is to start with gratitude. God, I am so grateful this morning for a safe house and a roof over my head, and a good cup of coffee is really nice too. God, I am so grateful for you, for your work in my life, for how you've transformed my life. This morning I was praying and I was looking at the Christmas cards we had sent to us at Christmas, which are still hanging on our wall in our kitchen. And I'm looking at those faces of people from our lives. And I'm going, thank you, God, for this family. Thank you for this person. Thank you for these mentors from my wife's college days that still send us a Christmas card. Thank you. Starting my prayers off with gratitude, it's so good. I would encourage that. I encourage you to do that with your kids. It's, it's really a terrific way to start. So we have in everything, by prayer and prayer, with prayer. And what's the last part? Let your request be made known to God. Sounds like prayer, right? So let's see if we can string all this together. If we were to retranslate it and get a little creative, Paul is saying to the Philippians, in everything by prayer and through prayer, with prayer, let your prayers be made known to God. Do you think he wanted the people to pray? Do you think he found that valuable? Jesus found it valuable. He said to his disciples, when you pray, not as you are led to conveniently engage with the practice of prayer. When you pray, the clause is, you're going to do this. This is going to be a part of your life. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, super simple verse. Pray without ceasing. Don't stop. Don't give up on prayer. A big place of conviction for me lately has been from James 4. You do not have because you do not ask. Ugh. What am I not asking God for? Well, it's probably the thing that I'm struggling with the most. It's probably the thing that's most pressing into my life. What's the point I'm trying to make? The point I'm trying to make is we were called to pray. We are called to pray. And if you are facing anxiety, if you are facing pain, if you are facing struggles in your life, or if you're facing joy, the question I would ask is, how's your prayer life? How is it? If it's not where you want it to be, join the club and start off with gratitude and start leaning into these things that Paul outlines here. The practice of prayer draws down our problems. Big things we can hold out to God just like we can hold out little things to God. And through prayer, not everything becomes the maximum problem that we're facing that week. It can be strung together and and cast appropriately in the right light so that we see it and we don't overemphasize on it. It's so easy to do that in our day. 
just to turn the latest crisis into the biggest thing in the world. How am I ever going to have time to do this? How am I going to make this happen? If you frame it in the language of prayer, you can right-size things. That's one of the wonderful gifts that God gives us in prayer, and that's how it leads us into peace. Paul talks about how peace is, in his vernacular, would have been shalom, right? He says this in verse 7. Excuse me. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. That's shalom. That's peace for everybody. Everybody in the room, everybody in the community gets to be a part of this. And I love how he uses the phrase, it guards your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I picture like a security detail. Like if you're a really important person, you have a security detail, right? Don't you think if you're walking around with security detail, I've never experienced this before, that you're like, I'm going to have a great day today. Like nobody getting through these guys, right? Like I'm good. That produces an incredible amount of confidence because you're confident in the abilities of the people around you. Let God's peace guard you like a garrison of soldiers when you go into that place that you know is going to be stressful. Let God's peace guard your heart when you go into work and you go, that guy is right there at my desk again and I do not want to talk with him. Ask for God's peace for you and for him. Let it guard your heart. Don't get drugged down into that place of despair. Let God bring you to that place where his peace is guarding you and empowering you. And then there's a preventative practice to prayer that I just want to mention as we start to wrap up. You've heard the phrase, death by a thousand cuts before, right? Let's see if we can turn that on its head through prayer and call it life by a thousand lifts. Life by a thousand lifts. What I mean by that is this. When I take my prayers to God, when I'm asking him to bless my work, to bless my family, for the opportunity to be a better servant through my role, leading staff, meeting with congregants, whatever it is that I'm working on, if I take just a minute and ask God to step into that, it's like someone lifts something off of me for just a moment. And you've had this happen to you before, I'm sure. You're carrying something that's too heavy. Somebody comes along and helps you with your bag. Or you're carrying your backpack along and you finally take that book out. Then like, how long is that book in there and why am I still carrying that book around? And then all of a sudden your backpack's that much lighter. It's a lifting. Through prayer, God lifts these things off of us. I think of when Jesus is walking to the cross and someone comes along beside him and they just lift the cross off of him for just a moment. Not even off of his back. He's still carrying it. But just a release from a little bit of that weight. You guys, that's what I feel when I'm praying through these things that would otherwise be burdensome and anxiety-producing for me. And I find that God in his faithfulness, not because I'm great, but because he is great, shows up and allows me to have life through a thousand lifts, a thousand opportunities to lift these burdens off of my back. I think he wants that for all of us. I think he wants that for people who are burdened with leadership, who are burdened with the questions of purpose, who are burdened with anxieties and fears like the Philippians were. And the person that we need to show us the way to this is right here in the text. I'll read verses 8 and 9 for us. Listen for where the Savior is breaking through. Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Everything that was just listed off there was a virtue, something that the people who lived in the Roman Empire would have said, hey, good people, they look like that. They look like people who are just, who are true, who are pure, who are commendable. These are the things that everybody, neighbors, people inside and outside the church would have said, these are good things. You should be about these things. 
And virtues are important. What I would ask us to consider this week is what are the virtues of our day? Is it being highly educated? Is it making a lot of money? Is it having perfect kids? And are those things worthy of praise, or are they not? And the way that we can really evaluate this, this is the lens through which we're actually meant to study this, is verse 9. Keep on doing the things that you have learned and received and heard in me, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, put aside the fact for just a minute that Paul is saying, like, look at me, pay attention to my ways. We don't like that, right? Like, in Western individualism, we're going, no, that's your way, my way, I got to figure this out, right? Well, Paul's a rabbi. Paul's a teacher. And you know what rabbis were supposed to teach their disciples? They weren't just supposed to teach them ideas. They weren't just supposed to teach them virtues. They were supposed to teach them from how they lived their lives. There was a phrase that was um, part of what rabbis were expected to do. The disciples of a rabbi were expected to follow the rabbi so closely that his dust would be on their sandals. His dust is on your sandals. You are following so closely behind your rabbi that whatever he kicks up, whatever he gets into, it gets onto you too. That's a person, not a set of principles. That's someone who is alive and can challenge you and be in relationship with you. That's not a set of ideas. That's someone who is present and stirs stuff up. Paul says, and I think we can hear Jesus saying this, follow my example, follow my lead, and you will find God's peace. Let my dust get on your feet. We all need a person to help us become the people that God longs for us to be. We can't just study it. We've got to be in relationship. And it's so wonderful that the problems that the Philippians faced, the promise that they received, the practice that they did their best to step into, and now the peace that they experience all comes through a person. That's the gospel. It doesn't come through them chanting the right thing or burning incense or offering sacrifices. It comes to them by grace because Jesus looked at them and said, I love you and I'm with you. And that is how he looks at us this morning as we come to his table. So I'm going to invite our musicians to come join me on stage and I'm going to invite our communion servers to come join me. And as we turn our attention now to this time at the table, we come recognizing that we are not worthy of this time, that this is a gift. And if you've never taken communion with us here at Bethany, you are welcome to take communion at this table. This is simple bread and simple juice. We have gluten-free elements for anybody who has allergy concerns. But this is the table of Jesus Christ. And he prepared it for the people he loves. He offers it to us by grace. He offers it to people who are experiencing pain and frustration. He offers it to people who are going through anxious times. And he offers it to those those of us who would come and say, God, I am not worthy of this. So I invite you to join me in a word of prayer as we confess, as we hold out those places to God where we don't feel worthy. And we ask him to heal us and make us ready now for the table. Please join me in prayer. Mighty God, we thank you for your word. We just want to take a moment and pause and confess and hold out to you the corners of our hearts that are, even right now, trying to run away from you. Where we have fear on repeat, where we are experiencing anxieties, where we wish we could have more courage, 
the conversations that we hope we can have. God, we hold all these things out to you. In the places where we have failed, where we have missed the mark, where we have neglected others, where we have neglected to care for the things that you call us to care for. Hear us now as in the silence we just hold these things out to you in confidence and safety and grace. Hear us as we pray silently. Oh God, as you invited the Israelites to follow you forward into an uncertain future, but a future where you are, you are with us. So we ask now that you would call us forward out of our sins, call us forward out of our places of brokenness into the new life that you have for us in Jesus Christ, starting today. May we come forward now to this table as a forgiven people. And we will thank you in advance for the mighty work that you plan to do through bread and through juice and through fellowship. We ask these things in Christ's name.